God's Word with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 10 verses 23 through 27. And we will back up a few verses for a little bit of the context of our passage this morning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. We'll also read the parallel account in Luke and Matthew. Luke chapter 18, and we will begin our reading in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And also Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we have heard your word, and yet our hearts would be unmoved. We would receive no benefit. Our faith would be uh, unstirred. Lord, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, we are the field. We cannot till ourselves. We cannot plant ourselves. We can only receive your grace, and we beg you for it. We pray that you would plow up our hearts and that you would sow this seed upon it and that it would be unto life and not unto judgment. We pray that it would be unto fruit 
and not unto barrenness. Lord, we thank you for all of your blessings. Help us to see that Jesus Christ and the offer of the gospel, our life in him, is the foundation upon which all other blessings may be had. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand what it is to enter the kingdom of heaven and that we would be careful of the dangers that would keep us from it. Lord, we ask that you would come by your Spirit and bless that the preaching of your word this morning would be faithful to what we have heard, that we would truly understand what you intend us to by these words, and that there would be a powerful work in our heart by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that we have need of change. We have need of repentance. We have need of a continual supply of your grace or our faith would fail. We have need of Jesus Christ himself praying for us, even as he did for Peter. And so we pray that you would do all of that for us this day that you would honor your promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age, and that you would bless the very humble means that you have provided for us this day and the messenger that you have sent, and that, uh, Lord, we would be blessed even by your hand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we see in Mark the after effects of this encounter with the rich young ruler. Although Mark's gospel is the briefest, as we saw, Mark gives us the most complete account of this interaction. This was not just something that was sad for this individual. It's not just something that um, upon which his eternal destiny was standing. But there was something about this that Jesus wants his disciples to learn from. Uh, that they need to benefit from and understand. Jesus knows his disciples. He knows where their confusion is, even when it's unspoken, of course. He knows that this is needed. And even to this day, the Lord Jesus has recorded this in his written word so that we would hear his voice and read these words and receive benefit ourselves. Now, it's very common to see the theme of these passages being uh, focused upon possessions or riches. And there's certainly some truth to that. That's certainly at play in this encounter. But I would encourage you to realize that as Mark shows us, the true theme of this passage is rather this matter of gaining entry into the kingdom of God. This matter of riches is just incidental to that. This is a an impediment to that apart from the grace of God. The, the heart of this has to do with something in common to rich and poor alike. These, these disciples were under no delusions that they were rich, and yet something about this rich young ruler's response to Jesus becomes an occasion for an important lesson even for these men. And so in verse 23, Jesus looked around. Now Mark he, he calls our attention to this. He calls this out more than once. You may remember as we read those verses that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler in verse 21. Looking at him, he loved him. You know, it's very easy for us in the busyness of life, I'll speak for myself here, uh, to 
have our attention so divided to be really thinking about one thing and answering another question, uh, maybe, maybe for a child. Uh, well, sure, Daddy will be right with you. Uh, Jesus is giving his full attention to these men. What he's saying isn't the, the, the fruit of him thinking of anyone else. He's not still just privately mulling over this encounter with the rich young man. But he's looking at these disciples and he's seeing the need for what he's about to say. He looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, again, this isn't just a reflection upon what they had just witnessed. They're, they're clearly just stunned by what they have just seen. Uh, their hopes were aroused. As, as we've seen again and again, they had a very worldly concept of the kingdom of God. They were looking for all of these outward markers of progress and prestige and respect. And if Jesus is really going to be this great king sitting on the throne of David, eventually that's going to be acknowledged and recognized and we're going to be there for it. And so they were all excited at this rich young ruler. They had such high hopes that Jesus spares nothing. He, he speaks the truth directly to him. And even in response to him turning away, he doesn't call him back. Well, well, wait, There's maybe we could still work something out. No, Jesus speaks the truth to him. And here these disciples are, are seeking to make sense of all of this. And Jesus speaks in the future tense, not just about what they had just seen, but as a general statement, this is going to happen again. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is going to prove to be the case many times over, sadly, before the end of history. Now notice what Jesus is referring to in this matter of entering the kingdom of God. This is synonymous. There are three different descriptions of this in the larger passage. You remember the question of the young man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus is speaking about entering the kingdom of God. And then in response, the disciples ask the question, well then, Lord, who can be saved? And so this kingdom of God has to do with salvation. It has to do with entering into this kingdom where Jesus is the king. We join him in a victorious reign over all the enemies of God. We believe in him by repentance and faith we enjoy the forgiveness of God and eternal life with him and so that's what Jesus is speaking about how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into that to enter into the kingdom of God to enjoy eternal life to be saved riches are of no help in this matter of entering the kingdom of God. You remember Isaiah chapter 55, where God's prophet calls his people many hundreds of years before, and his words still ring true today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live 
and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This matter of coming into this kingdom of God, of enjoying eternal life, of being saved, it's not something that comes back to your resources in any way. This is a call to renounce all self-reliance and to look to God, to say, God, I have no money to buy what I need. I have no money to have what I'm thirsting for. You hold this water. You have this wine and milk. You have this bread and food for me. And I am answering your call to come to you and simply ask, to come by faith, to come to you and receive your steadfast, sure love of your covenant. And so we're beginning to see then, as we think back over this, that the call to enter the kingdom, it's a call to leave behind our former life, and it can only be answered in humble faith. In being called to trust in Christ, there is with that a call to cease trusting in self. You can't do both. You can't serve two masters. You cannot trust two saviors. And the more comfort we have in this world, the more resources we have in this world, the more difficult it is for our hearts to even recognize a need beyond what we see satisfied. And then even in a case like this rich young man whose heart was troubled, he knew he did not have what he needed. He had everything that people could outwardly look for, and yet he comes to Jesus, I know I don't have eternal life. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Even in a case where the need becomes apparent and there's some work of God in your heart and there's some conviction and some unease in your conscience, even in those cases, the more resources you have, the more accustomed you are just to be able to obtain for yourself what you need, the more difficult it is not to be the rich young ruler. You recall that he comes to Jesus saying, what? What must I do to obtain eternal life? He's not even acknowledging uh, an Isaiah 55 concept of this. Surely, Lord, I I know it's within my capacity to do it. I just need a little direction. I need you to help me. Put me on the right course, and I'll do the rest. And so Jesus observes here how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, notice verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. They're astounded. They're dumbstruck. Uh, We don't even have record of any verbal response at this point. Uh, Matthew and Luke, they don't even record this as an interval between what Jesus has said and goes on to say. Uh, They're just amazed. They're amazed at his words. It's a stunned silence. And it's probably more the expressions on their face than any spoken reaction. We have no record of one. Uh, Why would this be? Well, the common view in their day was that riches were a sign of God's favor and blessing. And there was some grounds to believe that. He had given those promises in the Old Testament. They're repeated again. That in obedience to God, that's the path of blessing, that he would bless obedience to him, walking with him in covenant relationship. And these wealthy in Israel, they were viewed as those with the greatest capacity to do good, those with the greatest freedom in their time to pursue just studying God's word. 
this was the expectation, in fact, even in Jeremiah's day. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, here at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet, he is called by God to go, notice there in verse 1, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note, search your squares to see if you can find a man one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. It's something like the scenario where Abraham is praying for mercy upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, don't, don't sweep the righteous away with the wicked. And God says, well, how many righteous are there? And Abraham starts high and he prays his way down to ten. Lord, if you even find ten, please, for the sake of the ten. Well, what happens? He sends the fire and brimstone. What does that tell you? There weren't even ten. But he does send the angel, of course, to deliver Lot. Well, here is Jeremiah. And God sends him. He says, you find me one. You find me one man who is seeking after me, who's doing justice, seeking truth, that I may pardon her. Uh, Though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. Verse 3, O Lord, do do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Now notice what Jeremiah says in verse 4. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst bonds. So here was this understanding, this expectation. Surely the leaders of God's people, those of position, those with more education and training and the privilege to study and learn, they they did know so much more than these poor fishermen, even up to Jesus' day. You remember the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their problem wasn't a lack of outward education, but they had a heart that was hard toward God. And so here, Jeremiah's expectation, well, surely, surely among the great, I'll find godliness. That seems to prevail even down to the disciples' day. They're remembering the promise of blessing upon obedience. They see the riches and they think, well, well, here's someone that God has shown his favor to. Surely, surely, if anyone is going to receive the favor of God and be welcomed into this kingdom, surely it would be the rich How could it be that the very best, the very most favored, the most honored of all people would have the greatest difficulty in entering the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus, again, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so here they're they're astounded. They're speechless in response to their confusion and shock. Jesus makes the statement even more strongly. Not only is this true of the rich, he he makes it more general first. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You, You don't seem to understand just how difficult it is. Why would you marvel? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Notice how Jesus addresses them. He calls them children. Again, it's a testament of two things, of his love for them. It's a term of affection. But here they are, grown men, 
And what else is conveyed by this? You're just children. You, you have so much to learn, so much to grow. You're struggling with this. Here you are, by profession, within the kingdom of God, and you're wrestling with this truth of the difficulty of entering. And so you don't even understand what's happened in your case. How difficult it is for man to enter God's kingdom. If it is difficult for even the most miserable and humbled man to let go of trusting himself, to surrender his life to God. How much more difficult, even unto impossibility, for a rich person to fall upon God's mercy in total dependence, sensing his own inability to offer anything to God that would pay for his sin. And so this is true uh, of, of all of us. And, you know, it is staggering to, to just stop and consider. What is the gospel? Well, God has loved a fallen world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. It involved God sending his son from heaven, him facing the persecution, the deprivation, the needs and wants and persecutions of this world, all the way up to being nailed to a cross and left to die. That's what God has done, that we might have life. He gave his son up that we might have life. And then there is this level of resistance met. God sends his church with this message. Preach the gospel to all the nations. Tell them of what I've done for them, that I've sent my son. And here is the reaction. Why are you telling me that? I don't need that. I don't need anything. You can go, you find the most miserable person you can think of, and you will find, apart from God's grace, a resistance to this message. What, what, do, you, what do you have? What are you putting your hope in? You're miserable. You, you go to... The homeless encampments on the West Coast right now. And far and away, the, the, apart from God's grace, this would always be the case. But you will find person after person, I can offer you eternal life, an eternal home, a forgiveness of your sins, the smile of God. You can be adopted as, as the son and daughter of the king of glory. I'm just not really interested. That's the human condition. We're so hard and so proud and so self-reliant, even with so little, as Jesus said, what hope is there for the rich? What hope is there for the wealthy? To come to God humbly begging for his life and what he alone can give by grace. And then Jesus uses this figure of speech just to enforce the impossibility. When he says it's difficult, he's not saying they're going to really have to try hard. He's saying it is impossible. It is impossible. He goes on to say what's impossible with man, that's what he means. He doesn't mean this is uh, going to take a lot of effort. This is impossible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there have been some efforts to try to soften this or lessen this as an analogy. Um. Some have said, well, by changing one letter, kamelos would become kamilos, and that would change it from a camel to a really big rope. Well, you know, that you don't need to change the letters of God's word. It is what he says. It's no, no more possible, actually. You try threading a ship's cable through a needle. It's not any more possible. But that, that's beside the point. And then... Um, about the ninth century, we start having reference to some who, 
who began using this, the eye of the needle, as some metaphorical description of some special gate in the wall of Jerusalem, that if you closed all the regular doors, yet this little portal gate would be open for the night traveler, but it was deliberately designed small so that no one could rush through. You had to unload your camel, and they had to come through on their knees. That is not to the point. First of all, there's no historical evidence of that. But secondly, it defeats the point. Jesus isn't saying rich men are like camels. They have to be willing to unpack themselves, and then they can crawl their way through. It's, it's hard, but they can do it. The point is, it's impossible. No, this term very clearly, it's not the only time it occurs in the New Testament, but this word for camel, Jesus uses elsewhere to refer to the Pharisees straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There's no doubt about what this is in reference to. The camel was the largest animal in the region of Palestine. And the eye of the needle would be the smallest opening with which his disciples were familiar. This is impossible. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And a rich person cannot find their way through to get into the kingdom of God. What can a person do to inherit eternal life? You remember the rich man's question? Absolutely nothing. Well, how much do I have to pay? You can't. There is no entry upon self-reliance. Now, if the disciples were astounded before that the rich would have difficulty, now they're completely, exceedingly astonished, the text says. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? These disciples are just completely dumbfounded, and we see here why Jesus addressed them with this lesson. What was it about the rich young ruler seeking entry and then Jesus' response to them and Jesus' teaching now about how one can enter the kingdom of God? They clearly don't understand. They're completely astonished. Who can be saved? We see why Jesus addressed them. They were looking to men, perhaps even in their own cases, in seeking to understand their entrance and position in the kingdom. And this would correspond to their frequent arguments about which of them was the greatest. Do you remember? What, what's the, the, the basic point of error there? Well, they're looking at themselves. Well, you know, here's what I bring to the table. You know, I know I was a fisherman by trade, but you've never seen me in a noble's cloak. I'm really going to surprise you all. These men are looking to themselves, and Jesus is tearing down their pride. How could anyone be saved if such was the case for those with the very most to offer? And Jesus does what? Jesus looked at them. Again, he's looking at them. He loves these men. He knows these men. He understands where their hearts are, and he is helping them. He is addressing them. And he said, with man, it is impossible. This is not the work of man. It's the kingdom of heaven. You don't work your way in. You don't buy your way in. You don't earn your way in in any way. You can't be good enough. You can't be rich enough. You can't be intelligent enough. God saves men and women. God calls them again. As in Isaiah 55, as Jesus had called these men, what was the price of admission? He sees these men fishing. He says, come follow me. 
It is that simple. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you follow him. Mark calls attention to Jesus looking at these disciples. He, he is addressing them directly. And Jesus is calling them to lose all hope in man in order to find hope in God. This was why Jesus called the rich young ruler to give away his wealth and come follow him. It wasn't that there is no place for possessions in the kingdom of God. You know, that, that's been one wrong conclusion that many people have drawn. They've even asked, well, well, shouldn't we all just do this? Shouldn't we all just give away all of our possessions? But that's not the point. You can go to Scripture and see, well, we're called to work hard and to earn wealth that we might provide for ourselves and have that to share with him who has in need in Ephesians 4. Or we're called to be a faithful steward of that which God has given us, and he who is faithful in little shall be made steward over much. There's many things that we could correct this with, but even in this passage, we didn't read this far down, but in some following instruction, Jesus in answer to Peter's question, well, we've left everything and followed you, what did Jesus say? Truly I say to you in verse 29 of our chapter, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So it's not that there's no place for possessions, and that is the heart of the issue. No, it is the self-reliance that those possessions encourage. Jesus called the rich young ruler to give away his wealth because he came to Jesus trusting in his wealth. Just name your price. Jesus says, well, you have to give it all away. You have to give it all away and come follow me, and I can give you riches in heaven. That's too high of a price. I'm not going to do that. He betrayed that, that he was looking to himself. And Jesus called him to lay aside everything that was hindering him for a complete trust and dependence upon God in Christ. And this requires such a radical change in the heart of man that it is quite beyond his ability to affect it. Again, it, is, it should stagger us to realize how miserable a person would be and still decline the free offer of the gospel. I'm, I'm just fine, thanks. Well, no, you're miserable. You're a drug addict. You're homeless. You're, you're in prison. You have no family left, no one to love you, no one that you can say you love. You're, you're completely broken and stripped down to nothing, and you are still rejecting the mercy of God. That is the condition of men's hearts, and that's why... Jesus is pointing this out to his disciples that it requires the work of God to change our hearts. What is impossible with man is possible for God for all things are possible with God. Well, as we look at this passage, what do we learn about Jesus and his kingdom for ourselves this morning? And I think the first thing that we clearly see is how Jesus dealt with his disciples. He certainly doesn't avoid our weaknesses or steer around our failings. He's not content that we should just labor on in these sad misconceptions, which those disciples had. You may be sure we have 
And they weren't coming to Jesus. Jesus, we recognize this about ourselves. We have a deficient view of what it is to have entry in the kingdom of God. Could you please teach us? No, they think they have it all figured out. They're astounded to see Jesus dealing with this situation. But he looks upon his disciples. He sees his disciples, and he draws this out. He helps them. He addresses this, and and surely that is the case even today. Jesus speaks to his people in response to what he sees within us. We could go over to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We won't take the time to read all of those verses this morning, but it is the letters of Jesus, the risen Lord, to those seven churches And I would encourage you to read those verses this evening or this afternoon and recognize what it is that they are saying, that Jesus is walking in the midst of his church. He is aware of those problems, and he addresses them with his word, that it's no different than when he was with his disciples. He's looking at us. He sees us as we are, far better than we are aware, and he addresses our weaknesses, our failings, our misunderstandings where we need to grow. He addresses that with his word. He makes his word living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, laying open even our thoughts and intentions in our hearts. Jesus reveals that he is still looking upon us and knowing our needs and weaknesses, and he still has the same cure. He is our great prophet as well as our priest and king. Do you think you're any different than those disciples? Well, I hope not. If you agree that you are not, then let me ask you this. How does Jesus help disciples who are weak in faith, who are distressed by a lack of understanding God and His ways. You know, there are so many things in this world we don't understand, and they often hurt our hearts. We see many things happen that we don't understand. And are we prone to self-reliance in particular? This was the case of these disciples. And, and it, it has struck my own heart just how susceptible we all are to this self-reliance. Jesus speaks the word of God to his people. He comes to our hearts where pride just continually boils up and festers. And with the sharp blade of his word, he he lays our hearts open and he drains off the festering pride. And it is that pride that convinces us that we need only a little of this work in our lives. Well, how much, how much do you need Jesus to bring his word to bear on your life? Well, hopefully we are not so foolish as we read this passage to think, well, just a little bit. Or, on the whole, we're doing really well. We have maybe just a few things that we need to be corrected in. No, again, how do we obtain entrance into the kingdom of God? It has nothing to do with anything good in ourselves, no virtue no resource, nothing in our characters. We are an entire remodeling project. We need to become a a completely new creation in Jesus Christ. And that pride will grow unchecked in our hearts apart from Jesus coming with his word and just laying it bare again 
and again and again. And it will be to the destruction of many. Pride goes before a fall every time. And so we have to ask ourselves then, well, how, how does this show up in our attitudes? Well, I would encourage you to think about this in terms of the ministry of God's Word in our midst. What is it that will keep us back from coming and hearing His Word this evening? And what comfort and correction and blessing would you receive if you were and had been and will be present? You know, who was it that benefited from Jesus' instruction here? He looked around him and he saw these disciples and he spoke God's word to them. And if we would have that blessing, uh, we must make room in our lives for the word of God and its correcting influence. Well, the second thing as we look at this text is that riches are not the problem. It's our sinful hearts that would place hope and confidence in riches instead of in the Lord our God. But I will say this, as we see in Jesus' warning, that riches are such a common idol that Jesus warned in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the parable of the sower, in Matthew chapter 13, one of the four types of soil that corresponds to a response to the seed of God's word, one of the four is the thorny soil. And as Jesus teaches in that parable... The seed is cast and it even sprouts, but the thorns grow and wrap around the plant and choke the plant out. And as Jesus in verse 22 explains, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches, what is that a reference to? Well, it means that we will look at riches and believe a lie. We will look at riches and begin to believe a lie that we do have what we need. And we can resolve the needs of our lives. And we don't need them to be dependent or as dependent upon God and His work in our lives. We are all blessed in this congregation And to those of us who have been so blessed, have great care to set your affection on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, as we read in Colossians 3, verse 1. If you are not careful, your eyes will be blinded from seeing the glory of Christ, and you will join the millions who, like the rich man who oppressed Lazarus in life, went on to burn in hell. Hear the warning of God in James chapter 5, all of us. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The deceitfulness of riches is such that we are tempted and we are all susceptible to this. We can so easily believe that we are in some less need, a lessened need of God's grace. And we are so quickly persuaded by that lie to put our trust in riches. There are so many already in hell who are just like that rich man that Jesus records. You know, I'm here because I chose to hold on to those riches in a sinful way instead of serving God with them. And now I'm here. And I can't go back. And they do me nothing. No good. We need to make certain that Jesus is our priceless treasure and that all the riches in this world are held as a steward holds the possessions of the master. You know, it's something to be careful of. It's not something to reject. When God gives us blessings, they are that. They are blessings. They're to be used for his honor and glory. But we must continually keep our hearts subject to the word of God, subject to the ministry of the word of God, so that we can keep Jesus as the pearl of great price. And all of these things can be used for him instead of hoarded or trusted in. The third thing that we see as we look at this text is, especially in light of the dangers of unmixed blessings. Have you ever thought of that? What dangers it is when we only have good times? That's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous to our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. It's dangerous to our holding him as the pearl of great price and clinging to him with a sense of our total dependence upon him and his mercy. We should be comforted in every lack and loss that God has brought into our lives. We should remember that God always gives bread and fish to his children. You know, that we've all suffered something. Suffered a loss, suffered a deprivation. If that is, as our Father knows, the very thing that would keep us from becoming complacent in comfort and keep us, uh, wake us up to press on, to seek comfort in our pain from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then we can be comforted by God's love for us, even in those things where we suffer pain. And he never will cause us to suffer a pain that he will not comfort or cause us to suffer a loss that he will not restore. He is making all things new. Jesus knows what we need, and we can thank him. We can thank him even in the things that are the hardest and the most painful for us. Lord, I thank you for not allowing me to go the way of the world. I thank you, Lord, for this hardship that has made me freshly dependent upon you, that my heart has been broken, but I have come to you for comfort, and I thank you for keeping me dependent 
upon Jesus Christ and drawing near to him. How quickly would my heart draw all joy and comfort from the temporary things of this life apart from the wise and loving care of our Father. Consider how kind God is to keep us looking to him as he is the source of every blessing in eternity. And then the fourth thing that we see at the close of our passage, for with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible, for all things are possible for God. God has the power to do what is impossible for men, not only in our own salvation, but I would encourage you this morning to think of someone else who is outside this kingdom, someone else who has no hope of coming in except in God's mercy and then remember what Jesus is saying that God is able to bring even the most hardened self-reliant sinner to himself and as we all have those that we love who we believe are lost who are full of pride who have no interest in receiving the forgiveness of God and joining this kingdom Jesus reminds us today in his word to reject despair and to come to the Father and to pray for him to act. He has the power to save. And this is the same work of salvation that each of us who believe in Jesus has experienced. We need to keep asking until he answers. We need to keep seeking until we find. We need to keep knocking until... He opens the door and welcomes us in. All things are possible with God. And so as we, as we conclude this morning, we certainly have a sober warning. We see just how quickly the very blessings that God would pour upon us, becoming an idol, becoming a source of self-reliance, hardening our heart toward God. And we have occasion this morning to renounce all self-reliance and fly to Jesus. Lord, who can be saved? Only those that you save. Only those that you work by your grace and give a humility, Lord, that we might be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the comfort and the hope that is found in the truth. We thank you that you always speak the truth to us. It is never pleasant and um, easing to us in our sin. But we thank you that nonetheless you would call us uh, to leave behind the pleasant lies that we have been comforted in in our sin and to break those with the sword of truth, to look away from ourself. Lord, to have no hope in self. Uh, to draw no comfort and hope, to not be snared into idolatry in the blessings and the comforts that you do give us. Lord, we see what a danger it is to us that we must be looking to you continually by faith that we might have a place in your kingdom. And Lord, in your kingdom then we can receive every blessing that you pour upon us as long as we are clinging to Jesus and using those blessings as an occasion of thanksgiving to you and to use them for your honor and glory, to advance your kingdom. 
Lord, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price and not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And we pray that you would keep that truth uppermost in our hearts at all times so that we might be guarded from living for ourselves, from the deceitfulness of riches, that we might counter that lie with the truth of your word that humbles us so deeply and yet leads to every blessing and even eternal life. We pray that as these disciples were confronted with the truth and continued on following after Jesus, we pray that we also would be growing in our faith and growing in grace and that we would be eager for and even understand just how urgent it is that our lives be subject, our hearts be subject to the ministry of your word so that we would not grow complacent, so that pride would not grow in our hearts. For Lord, you alone can save and your word alone gives life. We pray that you would stir in us a hunger for you and your word that would not be satisfied by anything but a continual feeding upon Jesus Christ and the word of God. We pray that each of us would be daily reading your word and thinking of your word and that we would, as occasion allows, Lord, that we would fight hard and not let small things keep us back from the fellowship of your people and the ministry of your word as you call us not to be deceived but to continue and understand our need of gathering together not forsaking our assembly as is the habit of some. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged every day as long as it's called today in our disciple life of obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, in that, we do pray that you would allow us to be a blessing to as many people as we might uh, while keeping Jesus Christ first in our hearts. And we pray this now in his name. Amen.